okay. Hava, ha, okay. Here hello. we are. Hello, Hava, Michael. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. <sighs> Here we are. It's me. Hava. Yep. Let's refocus. Michael. Hava. Michael. Hi, how are you? I'm a little stressed. I don't know why. I'm I'm sorry. I know you seemed so relaxed oh before we God. started. And then I just got keyed up. I don't know why. I just had a nice relaxing walk in the woods. Oh. In the snow. In the snow. Skeeter was bounding in the snow like a bunny rabbit. That sounds incredibly cute. Is he okay with the snow? I feel like little dogs are often very precious about their feet getting too cold in the snow. But he's open to it. He's open to it. We put a jacket on him. And he just looks like a wiener just kind of coasting <laughs> over like the... Right. Coasting over the open air. So that was nice. You should get your mom to knit a sweater for Skeeter. I've asked, and she's like very like not Ugh, into it. So rude. I know. Not- Doesn't she know that's the only grandchild she's ever going to get? Probably. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if she cares about that kind of thing. I don't know what she cares about. She's a very confusing lady. That's fair. She did make Grunge Girl a pair of knit socks. Oh, wow. All right. Grunge Girl has ascended to a heretofore unheard of level of Michael girlfriend. Well, I mean, well, well, you know, since the you beginning heard it of here first, pod, folks. Since the beginning of the pod, I've she has made socks for other girlfriends. It's not necessarily wow. So it's just me who didn't get socks. Well, we, you know, could no, hardly there's say no... that we dated for all that long. We did though. <laughs> we did date. That's true. What I'm telling you is to get your mom to make me socks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. I can tell you're becoming less stressed as the pod goes on. I know. And I feel better. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. How are you, Havo? Baruch Hashem. I am well. My mouth is healing. My wisdom teeth are healing. Um, It is snowy outside. My cat is sleeping on the couch across from me. You know, all is as it should be in the world, except for all of the horrible things that are happening. But... In within my living room, everything is set. Yeah, stuff is good. Just finished a class series with Pinya last night and getting ready to go to my brother's wedding. It's like, I can't stop thinking about it, but I want to stop thinking about it. I want to not be anxious about it, but I just, am, I can't be free oh, from you're gonna that. you're going to look good. You're going to look good. You're going to party. I'm, I'm not worried about how I'm going to look, okay? Rude of what, you what to else is there to worry about? That's what I was nervous about. Wait, well, what are you nervous about? What are you nervous I'm about? I'm nervous about flying in a plane in the pandemic. I'm nervous about my family and their wackadoodle-ness. I'm nervous about leaving my cat behind for the first time in his life. Oh, but like you could be excited about all that too. Think of it as an anthropological journey. I don't want to take an anthropological journey. Well, I want to take an anthropological a... staycation. Well, I mean, yeah, so do I. But it's not just an anthropological <laughs> journey. It's an anthropological journey where you get to look good. That's every day for me. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Um, uh, Let's just start the okay. show. Enough of our nonsense. Yeah. On to some more of our nonsense. Yes. So today we are welcoming a guest to the show to help us with a listener question, which I believe is a first for the pod to have a guest addressing a listener question. Today our guest is Sarah Eifler. Sarah Eifler is the program director of Jewish Veg, a national nonprofit that inspires and assists Jews to adopt a plant-based lifestyle as an expression of Jewish values. She holds a BA from Brandeis University and is a current rabbinic student at Aleph, Alliance for Jewish Renewal. Sarah believes in a Jewish ethic of responsibility and care toward animals and the earth and is passionate about global food justice. Sarah Eifler, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? 
Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. It is our pleasure, our honor to have you. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. I forgot to ask you did. before the show started. <laughs> you did. I was actually very impressed. A lot of people don't. So how are you? How's yeah, it how's going? it going? It's going well. Thanks for asking. I am. Um, I did not take a walk in the woods today, but that does sound lovely. But yeah, I'm feeling the wanting to stay home on an anthropological staycation. I feel <laughs> <laughs> that's about where I am for the upcoming Shabbos weekend. I respect that. So let's go ahead and break out our listener question. Today, our listener question is from Confused and Carnivorous in Cape Canaveral, which, just to say, listener, that is an incredible sobriquet. Thank you so much for blessing us with that. The question is, I don't know why, but this question has haunted me for a long time. It's entirely meaningless in practice, but it keeps me up. In the world to come, it feels like we would all be vegan. So how would sacrifice in the Third Temple work? Will the poor little animals offer themselves willingly on the altar? Please put my rind to rest. Mm, I love it. I know. It's a good question. So first of all, listener, of course, thank you so much. You are, you know, the brightest star in our sky today. We appreciate your question so much. Before I ask our guest what she thinks, I'm just going to whip out this little sugya that I brought because we always like to center the show around a little piece of text. This is just a quick little anecdote from Bava Metzia 85A, where we read, Aliado Marsebo Maihi. The Sugya says, here's the deal. Here's why a bunch of bad stuff happened to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, in case you're wondering. What happened was, there was a certain calf that was being led to slaughter, and the calf went and put its head on the corner of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's garment. And Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, rather cruelly, in my opinion, turned to the calf and said, basically, get out of here. (laughs) Get out of here. The whole reason that you were created was to go be eaten. So get your head off my garment. Like, no photos, please. No paparazzi. Get away from me. So... Basically, because he was not compassionate in that moment, that is why all the afflictions of his life came upon him. So obviously, the Talmud has some opinions on what is going on in terms of compassion and responsibility to animals. So now that we have that sugya in the room and the question in the room, Sarah, I'm curious to hear your initial thoughts on this whole issue. All right. Well, I love that, Sugiya, and I love that story. Um, And actually, the follow-up to it is that there comes a time after all these afflictions are on Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, where um, there's a maid of his who's who's sweeping the room and comes upon a nest of weasels and starts to sweep them away. And he stops her and says, no, no, let them be. And because he shows compassion in that moment, the afflictions are lifted from him. Yeah, so it has a happy ending. Yeah. Also, I feel like that family of weasels, like, grew up to be Fievel Goes West. I feel like that's the origin (laughs) of Fievel. (laughs) I thought the weasels grew up to be those really smart weasels. What's that book? You know, all the mice that live... From the genetic laboratory. Oh, the rats of Nim. Oh, yeah, the rats of Nim. Mm-hmm. The weasels became yeah. rats. Another great in the ninety in our childhoods, rats and mice were having a lot of very weird adventures. I mean, Redwall. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God! Don't get me started. <laughs> uh, okay, so one thing I want to ask about specifically in regards to what the listener asked in the question is: 
The listener mentioned sort of in passing, in the world to come, it feels like we would all be vegan. And I feel like this is something I've heard just sort of like thrown off in passing that in Judaism, the sort of metaphysical ideal is to be vegan or vegetarian. Can you say a little more about maybe what's up with that idea, where it comes from? Absolutely. So where it comes from um, is actually the very first story of our tradition of the Torah, of Jewish texts, um, and that's the story of creation. So in the Garden of Eden, when God creates the very first human being, my favorite little fun fact to throw out is that the very first human being in Jewish text and tradition is a genderqueer vegan. Um, mm-hmm. Because you have this being who's created Ha-Adam, created from the earth, Adama, and this being is created male and female explicitly in the text. It says male and female, God created them, them. So that right. pronoun's been in use this whole time. Um, right. And so... In that first conversation that God has with this very first human being that they've just created, God says to them, uh, look around you, look at all the trees, look at the seeds of the trees, the fruits of the trees, that's your food, period. That's Genesis 129. So we know that the very first human being in the Garden of Eden was created to be a vegan and was part of this ideal world that God had this vision of how this world was going to operate, how this world was going to be. And the human being's role was to care for the world, to be you know, the steward of the land. And, you know, people talk about Genesis 126, that gets translated as dominion, that that the human being has dominion over the animals. Mm -hmm. But God has explicitly said that the human being is created in their image. So the relationship between God and the human being, the human being is meant to echo that relationship and their relationship with the non-human animals. They're meant to care for the non-human animals and for the world. And what happens, because then people ask the question, of course, well, we eat meat now and we know that's permitted, so what happened? This remains the case in biblical text that the human being is at least vegetarian, if not vegan, even after being expelled from the Garden of Eden. And we know that because there is a moment where we are first given permission to eat meat. And that happens right after the story of Noah and the flood. So Quick recap of the story of Noah and the Flood. (laughs) God looks down at the world, sees human beings being terrible, is like, nah, starting that over, don't like it. Floods the world. Noah and uh, Noah's family survive. They come out onto dry land, and God says, now the animals, the, the, uh, I'm going to mess up the quote exactly, but the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea and the, the birds in the sky, they're delivered into your hand like all the green things of the earth. I give you the permission now to eat them. And the fear and the dread of you shall be upon them. So not oh. only do we get in this moment an explicit naming that this is the first time that human beings are permitted to eat meat. In this moment where God has been so frustrated with human beings and their lack of ability to live up to what God had originally intended, we also get a severing of the relationship between humans and non-human animals. And it goes on to say only the blood shall you not eat because the blood is the life. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's the first restriction on what we do and don't eat. And that's the precursor to the laws of Kashrut, which then go on much, much further to name all the sorts of animals and animal products that we're not allowed to eat. Every single law of Kashrut, bar none, is a restriction on eating animals and animal products. So you Mm -hmm. see how Jewish text and tradition kind of moves us toward this ideal. And Rav Cook, and I'll be talking a lot about Rav Cook, I'm sure today, and um, <laughs> talking about the world to come and um, and the yes, idea of sacrifices. Rav Cook says that you know the the idea of this concession that God concedes to the human desire to eat animals was only meant to be temporary. 
we're not meant to stay in that low spiritual state that we are in right after the flood when God kind of decides, I've got to lower my standards. Mm-hmm. And just to wrap up this whole thing and get to where the idea that we're going to be vegan in the world to come is explicitly stated, that's in Isaiah 11. And when Isaiah is giving the prophecy that is very, very famous, um, that the leopard shall lie down with the lamb um, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, that line, which is in the middle of this long prophecy, explicitly says that in this ideal world, in this world to come, we're going to return to that standard in the Garden of Eden where the humans and the non-human animals, even the carnivores, are eating vegan, are only eating plants. Um, And if you can bet that if the carnivores are vegan, the humans are going to be. So all of that is biblical text, you know, the Tanakh itself stating vegan is the ideal, and it's going to be how we go back to where we came from and where we're going in the world to come. Wow, there was a lot there that I liked. I really liked the piece you brought about the being created in God's image, because it's like, God doesn't eat us. (laughs) Really key fact. (laughs) about God does not eat humans. (laughs) Yeah, that's the crucial. My brain is kind of melting a little bit. Yeah, it's funny that you brought that prophecy, which makes a lot of sense. I was preparing for this episode before I knew we were going to have the honor and pleasure of having you on the show. I ended up pulling a rom-bomb where he talks about that prophecy and he basically is like, it's all metaphorical. Right. Don't, which is, you know, that's his whole deal is he wants to make everything as boring as possible. <laughs> um, so I, I enjoy the literal interpretation of it much more. I do feel like that still leaves me with a lot of curiosity around this tension of like, if the ideal is to not consume animals that feels in tension with explicit commandments to sacrifice animals. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like much more so even than the consumption of the animal, the sacrifice feels like something that's that's even more in tension with that ideal for me. I kind of wonder if the original desert cult, you know, probably had this kind of interesting relationship with animals. And then Jews in First Temple, Second Temple, they stopped having those conceptions around animals. Like assuming these conceptions that you're arguing were kind of in the minds of like the original desert cult. I wonder if they kind of started disappearing Mm. during like the kingdoms of Judah and Israel and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that the taking the kind of historical view and looking at what was it like for those people in that time and that place um, is actually something that Rambam does, um, since you mentioned him, when he talks about sacrifices. And he kind of talks about, you know, in that area at that time, what people did to worship was sacrifice. Like that was the primary form of worship. And so for, you know, the Jewish people, this kind of new religion, religion in quotes, because it's an anachronistic term, was kind of coming to to being, coming to life. What were people going to do to worship if not do sacrifice? But there were limitations placed on where and when and how you could do sacrifice. I mean, and we see even in the Tanakh, if you're looking at, you know, how Aaron is the only person who's able to perform sacrifice, Aaron and then his sons. And Mm -hmm. so there always kind of going in the direction of limit limiting it more and more and more and then of course with the temple you're only allowed to perform sacrifice in the temple now that the temple's destroyed we don't do sacrifice anymore so again the trajectory always being towards moving away from it so that's the the kind of historical explanation that Maimonides brings I will say Ramban Nachmanides strongly disagrees with that because he says well from a theological perspective if you're saying that they were doing sacrifice because everyone else was doing sacrifice that doesn't explain the patriarchs you know the patriarchs are doing sacrifice Mm -hmm. before anyone else exists 
And right. so, <laughs> right. um, so he actually offers a different explanation. It's very interesting to note that anytime the idea of sacrifice and animal sacrifice comes up, there's always tension. There's always a way that someone needs to try and explain it. So I think there's mm-hmm. been very strong discomfort with the idea of animal sacrifice all throughout Jewish text and tradition. Um, and I'd love to talk about that in a minute, but I'm getting right. off myself off on a tangent. So back to Nachmanides. That's okay. That's the part of the journey of the pod. <laughs> um, so Nachmanides says basically that the reason that people perform animal sacrifice is because God has the right, um, not just the right, but that people, basically, the human being deserves to be punished. The human being has has committed a sin, has done something terrible, deserves to be punished. And not, he doesn't just say punished, he says essentially slaughtered and torn limb from limb. Like he's, he's graphic it. in his description. Rough. Of how, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and so instead of the human being and the human being's body suffering that punishment, that gets enacted upon the body of the non-human animal and God accepts that as a substitute. And so the purpose of the sacrifice is for the human being to witness the way that the animal's body is being you know, slaughtered and, and treated mercilessly, know that the human being deserves that, um, and therefore to you know, be better and to value life more. That explanation is the exact explanation that I hear on the streets of Brooklyn when I go and talk to practitioners doing Kaporos. Um, so Kaporos mm. is a uh, ritual that started in about 600 CE in Europe. And some people still practice it today and some people practice it using chickens. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of those people are in Brooklyn. We have a campaign that goes to the streets of Brooklyn during the High Holy Days, which is when this is practiced. And we talk to people about using coins instead of using chicken. But the reason that people use chickens, and, and again, they, I've heard this over and over again in the streets, is for the exact reason that Nachmanides talks about, because watching the death of an animal reminds the human being um, how precious life is and how they should do better. And mm-hmm. obviously, the problem with that is that it is using the body of a non-human animal as a commodity, as a tool. Um, Mm -hmm. And Judaism rejects that. Judaism says that uh, non-human animals are not created for the use of humans. Non-human animals are created for their own sake, for themselves. And they also have covenant with God. And they also have relationship with God. And all living beings praise God. And so non-human animals are not just tools. Um, And Judaism, Jewish texts, and Jewish values and morals and ethics all state that it is our job to be kind and compassionate and care for non-human animals. Got it. So in both of these paradigms, in the Maimonides paradigm, we had offerings before because that's sort of the stage of development we were at. So in the world to come, we won't need them because it's the world to come. We'll be like, you know, completely transcend all that shit. And then from the Nachmanides perspective, we will also be in a certain sense perfected in the world to come so we won't need the demonstrative destruction because again we will have transcended exactly yes and that's what rob cook says too so (laughs) uh, to get back to him for a minute yeah he says basically exactly that we're gonna be you know past the point where we need to offer animal sacrifice as a means of kind of showing ourselves the value of living life correctly and living at all because again the purpose of sacrifice is always for the human being and i brought with me i did some homework i brought with me a text from the talmud oh great that speaks directly to that and um, so this is from menachot 110a i'm not going to read anything but the english because 
We don't want to hear that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It says, essentially, lest you say that God needs these offerings for consumption, um, it, it goes on to quote Psalms. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and everything within it. And it is stated for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Um, So establishing, again, this relationship between God and non-human animals. And then it goes on to say, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Which I love because it just brings this, you know, kind of cringy physicality that is just love. And essentially going on to say, again, that in the voice of God, you are not sacrificing to fulfill my will, but you are sacrificing to fulfill your will. Sacrifice is for the benefit of the human beings. Not only will we not be at a point in the world to come where we don't need that, we're at a point now where we don't need that. We don't perform animal sacrifice, have it for 2000 years. And further, we're in a place where we don't need to be subjecting non-human animals to cruelty and to the kind of misery that comes with factory farming. And that's what Jewish Veg is really trying to get the Jewish community to be talking about. How can we kind of move forward as a community to a place that is more in line with Jewish values? This all makes me wonder, where did the idea that we're going to rebuild the temple and start doing all the things we used to do in the temple in the world to come, where does that come from? Because that's at odds with this idea that we're all going to be, you know, vegan uh, and perfected, you know, in the world to come. Right, Right, which I'm down for. I'm ready to be perfected. (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready to be perfected. I kind (laughs) of like being... Well, when the time comes, you will be ready. That's the thing about perfection, is that if you achieve it, you were de facto ready for it wasn't there an episode that we did that we talked about the world to come and didn't you say like there's one rabbi who argues that it's actually going to be really similar to this world it's going to be like not that much different oh well that's in the same section of maimonides that i talked about earlier where maimonides is like don't think it's not going to be so different okay we're not going to (laughs) be flying around we're not going to be doing anything too crazy Maimonides was like, it'll be fine. We'll just all, everyone will be wearing the same beige jumpsuit and eating the (laughs) same porridge. (laughs) I guess what I want is like a a tree of the history of the concept of the world to come and like first occurrence in history and then like the branching theories. You know what I mean? The Mm -hmm. thing that could never exist and is impossible to construct. Right. Because there's clearly contradictions, you know? Right. Well, it's, it's Judaism. Of course there are. Yeah. So I I guess like what the real takeaway that I'm getting from what you're saying is that this conception of the world to come where we're going to be recreating the things in like, you know, a third temple, that's just one of the possibilities of the world to come. And there are theological arguments that you could make that challenge that there's other potential states of world to come that you can argue for. Yeah, I will say, and I'm, I'm trying to quickly find the text. Okay, so it's from the Midrash. It's from Vayikra Rabbah 9-7, where it says that all sacrifices will be annulled in the future in the time of the Third Temple, except the Thanksgiving offering, which was a, a grain offering. So even in conceptions of the world to come, where the temple is rebuilt and sacrifices, non-animal sacrifices, plant-based sacrifices are happening, still animal sacrifices aren't happening. That's not to say that you will, I mean, um, there are plenty of Orthodox rabbis or or other rabbis or other Jewish leaders who will say, no, we're going to be doing animal sacrifice in the world to come. No two Jews are ever going to agree on anything. But, you know, there's, there's very clear textual basis, ideological basis and theological basis for not only not having animal sacrifice in the world to come, 
you know, looking at our behavior now and seeing how we can adjust behavior now to be more in line with Jewish values that have always existed and that we want to continue to uphold. You know, that reminds me of kind of doing things now that will maybe mimic the world to come that we want to create. It reminds me a lot of our episodes with Sam when we talked about the Messiah and and Sabbatai, Mm -hmm. where like the Messiah is actually this kind of insignificant marker of a time, but really we need to like iteratively create the, you know, the conditions for right. the world to come now just reminds me of that a lot, that process, which it seems like you're advocating for when it comes to vegetarianism. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that, you know, the purpose of our of our vote, of our ethics, of, you know, our entire tradition is on focusing on, on what can we do now. Um, there's, you know, a lot of emphasis on Judaism and, and right practice, not just of, you know, specific ritual, but of how do we act in the world? How do we interact in the world? How do we kind of establish ourselves as part of this world that we're in now? And I absolutely believe that we have a responsibility to create this world the best way that we can, to be in it the best way that we can. And, and you know, tikkun olam is, <laughs> is a bit of a buzzword, but for a reason, like there's a reason mm-hmm. that we really believe in Judaism and not just Judaism, of course, other faith traditions too, but I'm speaking of this one, that we need to be building the world that we want to see now. Um, and the way to do that is to, you know, think through the actions that we're taking and, and talk about them and make choices as a community of what we want to see and where we want to go. Right. I love that. I do. There's a, a tension remaining that I think is outside the scope of this episode. But of course, there's a, a conflict and a tension left hanging between sort of the Maimonidean, Nachmanidean conceptions and the sort of later Kabbalistic thinkers who mm. some of them would argue God does need stuff and does is like does need all of the things that are happening and, and have this sort of very different conception of God from Maimonides. So they might find themselves at odds with how those two were arguing about the sacrifices, but that's mm. getting into a whole theological episode about whether God needs things or not, which is a topic that comes up a weird amount on this show. <laughs> okay, okay. So, Sarah, I want to put you on the spot to okay. an- for to answer the qu- question, the listener's question directly. What do you think? Is there going to be a third temple? What's going to happen in it? Oh, you know? That's a big question. Yeah, I mean, it's fair. That is, it's, I feel like it's a fair question. Like, is that going to exist? And then I have another follow-up for you. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think that in terms of whether there will be a third temple, I think that we certainly have that in our text and tradition. I think that that is something that is, you know, kind of stated as something that will happen. Whether you take that as a metaphorical idea, like maybe Maimonides does, or as a literal idea, I think either way, it still kind of points to me to this longing for a place in which we can be our best selves. Um, and I, I truly believe that that's the most important piece of it, that this longing to be our best selves um, and to really kind of act in accordance with our beliefs, um, that's what I want to try and do now. And I think that, again, that is how we get to a world to come, you know, with a physical third temple or with whatever manifestation of that is significant and, and means something to us um, now and then. So I guess I I personally am not so much of someone who focuses on what will be in the future as much as I focus on what can I do now to build the future I want to see. Mm, 
Clever, clever. <laughs> I personally am of the opinion that there's a rock-solid epistemological black box around the world to come, and that there's there we can only do our best to prefigure it. We can't know what any of it is going to be. All right, okay, all right. It's all, all, all very <laughs> so tricky. You haven't answered. I, I have an answer. I, yeah, I am, just, Michael, I am the on. provocateur. I am <laughs> no. not the answer of so questions. you think you're immune from all this? I didn't say I was immune. I just said I was the provocateur. So uh-huh. We all have our own homiletic games that we play to get around these questions. So right. listeners take note. But I have another question for you. So a while ago, we had an episode about phoenixes. And oh, I yes. forgot all about this and its relevance. Yes, I love it. So there's mythology that's referred to, and I think... I'm pretty sure in Midrash and also Talmud that when the world comes, the righteous will feast on the behemoth, the phoenix, and the, I forget the fish one. What's the fish one? Um, the Leviathan. The Leviathan. Yes, the Leviathan. Yeah. We're all going to eat them. My volley, I'm going to go ahead and make a pre-volley that uh, it's going to turn out that these are actually animate plants. I'm going to guess that your answer is going to be like it's a metaphor or that mythological creatures are not the same thing as creatures oh well that would that would be opening up a whole bucket of (laughs) mythological worms yeah it would be bad well i love the idea being vegan in the world to come reaching a different level of spiritual cleanliness what's the right word spiritual awesomeness i'll just say (laughs) spiritual badassery spiritual (laughs) hardcoreness remember when that was a thing that's probably still a thing hardcore wrap up your question (laughs) as much as i am open to the vegan thing I do want to eat the Leviathan. So do you have a take on that? I will admit I was afraid you were going to ask me this question. <laughs> really? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, it says that. It says that I think in, in you know, <laughs> a couple of places, but not the majority of them. So my my feeling is, you know, you're always going to find things that people say in, in various places that are not in keeping with kind of the what you're finding in, in most other places. I'm hoping this is one of them. I feel that in the world to come, when we are in a state of being so far beyond this, this spiritual um, carelessness and apathy towards the lives of other beings, my hope is that we at that time will not want to eat the Leviathan, um, that we will appreciate the Leviathan as a being in their own right. I want to hang out with the Leviathan. I want to fly on the Phoenix through the sky. <laughs> but do you think God will offer us... <laughs> right. God is like, Phoenix rides were not on the table. Phoenix eating was on the table, and you said no. That doesn't mean you get to fly on the Phoenix now. <laughs> wow. So I'm just going to sum this all up in the basic, most direct answer to our dear, confused, and carnivorous in Cape Canaveral, which is to say, in order to put your mind at rest, dear listener, seems like if there is a literal third temple, A lot of sources suggest that there won't be any animal sacrifices at that temple. So you don't have to worry about the animals in the world to come. Your mind can be at rest that they will be chillin' like villains. (laughs) Yep, yep. But you might get to eat some mythological creatures, potentially. But hopefully you won't want to. Hopefully you won't want to, but God may or may not offer it to you, and it may be some It might be a test. What if it's a test? What if God's like, you can eat the Leviathan, and then if you say yes, (laughs) right to Gehenim. It's just God gaslighting you. Immediate, like, elevator comes up and sucks you down. (laughs) Oh, my God. it's, It's terrible. Ah, wow. Well, listeners, thank you so much for coming with us on this journey. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on this episode. 
Thank you so much for having me. And I wanna just thank the, the person who submitted the question. I think it's a, a really beautiful thing to be asking those questions and to be thinking about what the experience of non-human animals is like or could be like. So thank you as well to the, yeah, um, for me for asking that question. Thank you so much, listener, for giving us this opportunity to have this conversation. Sarah, I assume you want to plug Jewish Veg. Do you want to do a Jewish Veg plug before we sign off this episode? Oh, well, thank you. I was I would love to. Um, so Jewish Veg, we do a variety of programs and events, but one that I'm very excited about is that we are having our upcoming second year of our Passover Zeder, that is Zoom Seder. So it is a Veg Zader, um, you do not have to be vegan, vegetarian, or have any kind of certain eating practice to attend. You can come as you are. We will have a bit of a look at the themes of Passover and how they apply through the lens of liberation to all living beings. And you can find the link to that in the description. And you can also find us on social media at Jewish Veg. That's Veg, V-E-G. Awesome. Incredible. Thank you so much. We will put a link in the description to this episode so that you all will be able to click on it super easily. It has been a delight to have you on the show and a delight to have this conversation. And to all our dear, wonderful listeners, we bid you a Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.